All right. Well, it's good to be here. Good to see you all. So my name's Tuere Salah. So <clears throat> this month, we are going to continue with this discussion on dukkha. I'm not sure if that's what Jerry talked about last week, um, but I'll be here this week and next week. And um, I want to talk about dukkha. And I'm hoping, like I said the last time I was here, that we could rethink this idea of what dukkha is, because it is essential that we understand dukkha. It's essential that we understand um, what, what this thing is that we call dukkha in order to actually free ourselves from it. That the longer you practice, the more you can begin to realize that whatever dukkha is, that dukkha, or in this case, I'm going to describe it in just a minute, but dukkha and the end of dukkha are the same thing. They're found in the same place. So unless we come to some softening realization around the nature of dukkha and what it is and come to terms with it, we will forever be trapped in it and forever searching for something that we won't be able to find. Um, I think last time I talked about how the Buddha had these two practices and he went to the blissful states and then he went to the Jains with this extreme state. And in that extreme state um, is when he realized that this is not working. So we all go through this. We all strive to have some, some, some pleasurable thing that's going to fix whatever our difficulty is. And we can get trapped in the pleasure, but it doesn't actually fix the difficulty. This is what the biggest problem is. It's, it's not uh, that we as human beings, any one of us, can figure out a way to make our lives righteous, happy all the time, good, easy. We just can't do that. And yet everything that, you know, everything that we think about in terms of I'm going to spend my money to go do that is something we think is going to take away the difficulty. Something that we think we never spend our money on something that says, hey, I'm going to bring you right into the mess and we're going to stay in that mess a while. We're not spending any money on that. We're immediately like, yeah, I don't want to do that. Whatever it is, unless you went to Landmark because Landmark education, they were pretty clear that, uh, we're locking the doors and you're stuck in here for the whole time. You're just going to have to suck it up and it's going to be difficult. And um, it was. And we kind of paid for that right to have that happen. So that might be a little different. But most, most of the things that we think are going to help us free ourselves from whatever difficulty we're having it's, it is sold to us as it's going to be some pleasurable thing, something that's going to make us happy. So, so then to step into this practice that seems to be around this word, dukkha, 
that is a Pali word that's translated as suffering. That's what it's translated in English. Dissatisfaction, dis-ease. Um, I wish it wasn't translated like that. I think, I wish it wasn't translated um, in that name because it creates this attitude that we somehow have to just be with uh, sadness and difficulty and a mess. But that isn't really what dukkha is. So a little bit more on the story when the Buddha, uh, when he um, left and took something to eat, well, he took something to eat and his friends left him and said pretty much, uh, Siddhartha cannot cut it. Too bad for him. He can't, he can't cut it. So they went off on their own, the other five. And the Buddha was there by himself trying to figure out, get his strength back so he can practice with this idea that there may be something other than uh, pleasure or pain, that there's something other than that. And he found it. He found the path that would lead to something other than pleasure or pain. So when he awakened and he settled himself down and decided to teach, he then, the first thing he wanted to do was to find his five friends that had left him and tell them what he had come to understand. So he didn't just go off and, I'm sure he had some times when he was mad at them, you know, because there's a sutta where the Buddha talks about dividing his thoughts up. And some of his thoughts, he said, were ill will. So I'm sure he was thinking about them leaving him by himself and not helping him out, not staying with him. He's all alone. He doesn't know what he's doing. And uh, just, just by its nature, he wants to practice, but he's not quite sure what it is that he's doing. In a way, this is the mind state that we have to take into approaching dukkha. If we approach it from this mind state that we know what it is, then we're just going to see if we can get something to get rid of the difficulty. But if we had this mind state that I'm not sure what it is and why in God's name with the Buddha bank his whole teaching on this notion of dukkha, which has been translated to sorrow, dissatisfaction, disease. Why would he do it like that? I think there's something else. So when he came to his understanding, when he actually was awakened, and he goes to his friends, he tells his friends basically what we call the Four Noble Truths, the three truths we're going to talk about a little bit later this year. He tells his friends about these Four Noble Truths, and he says, and the way he started it is he tells them that, that we live in a world of two extremes, pleasure or pain. We think we have to have things pleasurable and pleasing or we think we have to 
suck it up and just stay with the difficulty and transcend out of it. But he said that, that he had found a way that's what he called a middle way to this. So you are not in a practice that's going to lead you to pleasure and you're not in a practice that's going to have you wallowing around in pain. You're in a practice that somehow or another is this middle discernment of how to be with pleasure or pain, how to have a healthy, skillful, non-harming relationship with pleasure and pain, but you're not in a practice that leads you to pain or leads you to pleasure. So if you're overly, if you're feeling overly painful, then you're not in the middle way. You're going to have to do something to see what is happening with this pain. If you are striving just for the pleasure sits, yeah, that's, that's not the middle way either. You're going to have to do something to help you settle with the truth that you will not always have pleasurable sits. So if we're striving for something that's in the middle, then what does this have to do with dukkha, suffering, if we're striving for something in the middle? What the Buddha told his friends were that there is this first kind of wisdom he came to was there is dukkha. What he realized is, I think a better way for me to translate that word is I would call it resistance. There is some kind of resistance here. I can feel it. Some kind of tension, some kind of pushing or pulling, grasping after, pushing against, some kind of tension in this moment. And I can feel that tension. And when you can feel that tension, you can go through the other steps with the, uh, the causation that his difficulty in that moment was coming from his resistance. It was not coming from whatever was arising in the moment. And then uh, letting go of his resistance was liberating. And um, that in and of itself was where his, liber- his liberation was coming from. It wasn't coming from getting a pleasurable state and it wasn't coming from suffering through the difficulty until you didn't care about it anymore. Instead, he had found this middle way to acknowledge whatever was happening and then begin to notice his resistance to it. So when he noticed his resistance and he let go of that resistance, whatever it is, is here. So he let go of the resistance to whatever was arising in the present moment. That's when he began to see the truth of the way things were. That's when he began to see what was possible with this mind. 
Because when you let go of resistance and you allow the nature of reality to be as it's going to be, what he noticed was whatever rose in any given moment would at some moment in the future cease. He didn't have to do anything to make it cease. It would cease. And that was it. Whatever pain he had in some given moment, that pain would cease on its own. If he let go of the resistance to that pain, whatever pleasure he had in some moment, some pleasurable state, that if he did not try to hold on to it, it would cease and it would fall away at some point. And that understanding, he it was freeing because he began to realize that he could be with life with its ebbs and flows and ebbs and flows and ebbs and flows. And he could begin to sense a middle way to move through the world. So he shared with his friends and taught in many to many lay people and nuns and monks about the five ways in which dukkha comes. So the five places, I would say, where dukkha, this resistance happens. First, it's birth, aging, and death. So this resistance to dying, resistance to aging, and the resistance of some birth of something. So you can think of it as, um, it's not even, I guess it should say, I shouldn't say it's the resistance to this birth, but it is not seeing that something is taking birth. So we are, uh, in a way, you could say you're resistant to the truth of what's happening. Somebody is, something is taking birth. So in truth, when babies are born, They're on their way to death. But yet, if you look at a baby, you don't see death there at all. You see nothing but cuteness, cuteness and happiness. And they smell good. How can anything smell that good? It's coming out of someone's body and it still smells so good. And that, that energy in that birth is in and of itself. This being is going to suffer by the mere fact that that being is born and there's no alternative to it. So any resistance to the fact that the being will suffer creates dukkha. It creates a tension that you have to deal with for your whole life. He said that sorrow, lamentation, I think that's like the the spinning and stuff and um, what's that word that I use? It's, it's, it's kind of a spinning and getting caught up in something, obsessing over something, but sorrow, lamentation, grief, despair, these are all things that cause dukkha. But we can't get rid of the grief, sorrow, lamentation, this despair, I mean, I, I told uh, Nisabo, uh, Ajahn Nisabo, we were talking and 
we had this moment where we said, I don't think I have, will ever feel despair. I can't even believe that, but I will not experience despair because despair has this quality of there's no of permanency, that there's no way out of this, that this is the end of it and it is forever weighted on you. And I don't think I will ever in my, in this life ever believe that something is permanent and that there's no way out of it. And so aside from that, for me, sorrow, I will always feel in this lifetime, grief, lamentation, obsessing over things, ruminating over things, these kinds of qualities of mind will be with me. Even despair might be with us, but that quality of mind comes with the body of being human. Dukkha is our resistance to that. So it's this acknowledgement that sorrow will produce dukkha because sorrow in and of itself will produce resistance. He said that having to deal with stuff you don't want to, having stuff you want taken away from you and not getting your way. Those are the five ways that dukkha gets produced and it seriously gets produced. (laughs) I was thinking like sitting in this room without that fan on is giving me some resistance here. So our task as practitioners is not to somehow or another no longer have sorrow because the sorrow is not part of practice. The sorrow is part of being human. The aging is part of being human. Everything's going to age and decay in some way. The death is going to be human. The birth and the difficulty that comes because you're born, that's part of being human. The having things taken away from us that we don't want to lose, that's human. Having to deal with crap we don't want to deal with, human. Or just not getting our way. We have some grand plan. I wanted to be like this. Tim and I wanted to be in that place downstairs like five months ago. We had it all planned out. We had the ceremony and everything. Yeah, that's human. The resistance to all of that is unnecessary because my resistance or grumbling about not being downstairs before the summer hit, what does that have to do with right now? I could be resistant to it, but it has no bearing on reality. And what the Buddha realized was somehow or another, his resistance to reality is what was causing so much trouble. That what frees us as human beings is the letting go of the resistance to reality. And this is a difficult thing for an ordinary mind to understand. So I'm just going to give a little bit more and then we're going to take some questions and see what you think. When our ordinary mind 
hears resistance is the cause of our difficulty. There is this immediate thought, which many of you may have already had a thought like this, which is, but what about this? What about problems that are real problems? What about what we're doing to the climate? What about you know, like some of the, you know, isms that are around. What about, you know, all the difficulties? What about when I get sick and I need to get help? What about, what about, what about? And I don't think that Buddha, when he said, or when he dealt with this idea of resistance, was saying, don't do nothing. Like letting go of resistance doesn't mean don't do nothing. It's not the same equation. Letting go of resistance is accepting what is in front of you and do what you can. So we got to accept this heat and do what we can. And what we can is we're going to leave early. That's what we can do. We can't change the heat, but we can leave early. And that kind of relaxing into what is here is where the liberation lies. It's not in whether there's heat or too much heat or whatever. And so as practitioners, we are not practicing to try to suck it up and take on anything and everything and just be with it. I don't care. I'm just going to be with it. We're not practicing towards this uh, nihilism of just, you know, it doesn't matter. Not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna fight anything. And we're not practicing towards these exalted states that just bring so much bliss. Not that we can get there anyway, but we've heard of those. And so there's an idea, and we may have even felt it in a moment's time, but we're not practicing for that. We're practicing to learn how to be with reality as it is and do what we need to do to support ourselves. You know, whatever that is, respond to reality with whatever skillful means that we have and be in reality. That's what we're trying to do. And so what I think Buddha's uh pointing to when he was pointing to dukkha is he was pointing to reality and the reality is this is not the best um this is not going to be an easy life we're going to have some struggles here and it doesn't have anything to do with you or me then i understand why he wanted us to practice together in community. I understand why he created this very interwoven sangha, this sangha that was absolutely dependent on practitioners and practitioners dependent on these monastics. It was so infused and interwoven in the Asian community. It is shocking. I don't know if I've told you guys, but I've told Sanghas before that have a friend who is a wandering monk. Uh, he's white, but 
he says that he goes to a airport if he needs to go somewhere because he can't just ask for money. And he just sits in the airport. And Asian people will come up to him and say, do you need a ticket? Do you need somewhere to go? And they will buy his ticket. We don't have that kind of culture. We don't have that kind of thinking in our minds. We're not, we're not taught that way. But in Buddha's world, when he crafted this Sangha, it was interwoven. So you had to depend on other people in order for you to be able to practice with this letting go of the resistance to reality so that you would know. And many of you know the story of the woman who lost her child and she was devastated and wouldn't let the child go. She wouldn't, it was the only child she had and she carried it around and she wouldn't let it go. And so Buddha could have had a conversation with her about, you know, uh, she went to the Buddha because she believed the Buddha could uh, bring her child back to life. And Buddha knew he couldn't bring the child back to life, but she believed the Buddha could do that. And so he agreed to bring the child back to life. If she could go and find a mustard seed from one house where they haven't lost somebody, that was going to be such a precious mustard seed that's what he was going to use to bring her child back to life. I just think it's significant that a mustard seed is tiny. And yet he was going to do this great thing for her if she could bring one little tiny thing back. He didn't have to tell her, I can't bring your baby back to life. He just said, okay, I'll do it for you if that's what you want. Just go bring me this mustard seed. After several houses, you know, she came to the realization for herself. It's not going to work. I'm not going to find anybody with a mustard seed. So she went to the Buddha and gave up her child and practiced, wanted to practice instead. Because this realization is the more we realize we're not going to, we're not going to, we're not going to be in the perfect world. We're going to be in a world where sometimes it's good and sometimes it's not. And we're all going to go through that. And sometimes I'm going to have the good days. And sometimes you're going to have the good days. And sometimes you're going to have the bad days. And so hopefully when you're having a bad day, I'm having a good day. Or we can wallow in the bad days together. That's okay too. But hopefully we stay together and this ebbing and flowing that naturally happens with this practice that we can begin to practice together. And that practicing together is what helps us let go of this resistance. And as we let go of the resistance, we get freer and freer and freer with the way life is. So even though we are talking about death and birth and dying and sorrow and lamentation and, you know, all of this. Even though we're talking about that, even though we're talking about not getting what we want and having to deal with stuff we don't want, even though we're talking about all that, we're not really talking about that. 
we're talking about the quality of liberation that comes with no longing, no longer having to fight that and somehow or another make ourselves perfect so that we don't have any of that happening. Everybody else does, but we don't. We got our life perfect. We don't have to deal with that. That's what we're really talking about. So next week, I think I want to do a uh, discussion night on it. We'll see how the weather is. If if it's uh, hot like this, we might just do another talk so we can leave early again. <laughs> we'll see. If the weather's nice, then we'll do a discussion night. And Of course, we could do a discussion night and people could go outside. That would actually be a good thing. So maybe we'll do a discussion next week on and how to how how to work with this dukkha in a more embodied way. All right, so let's sit for a moment. Okay, so let's take about 20 minutes or so, see if, uh, see if there's any questions that people might have. Yeah, go ahead. Maybe I can tell you what I think I understand and you can tell me how close I am. So I think what we experience bad things happening. It seems like one, one big bad thing is happening and it's all just bad and it sucks and it's making me miserable. But what I think I'm learning is that when we really notice what's happening in detail, we see that a part of that is optional and we can just not do that part. And in that we can find some peace. Yep. That's what I'm saying. Part of it is optional. And that part that's optional is the part that is tying a whole bunch of little bads together to make one big bad. And we don't see that resistance to the bad. In our resistance to the bad, we don't want nothing. And so we don't see that. You're right. And when we see that part that our mind is latched onto and let go of that, you'd be amazed how much you could actually tolerate that's difficult or problematic and some easier than others, but you can handle it. Thank you. I think Duca as resistance really helps yeah. me make that leap. So thank you. Yeah. You're welcome. Yeah. One thing. So um, what you were talking about tonight, um, specifically with the idea of like, uh, clinging to stuff you like and then trying to push away the stuff you don't like. Um, it brought to mind something that just recently, so I'm a therapist and um, I've been integrating more. Can you guys hear her? Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. okay good. I've been integrating more um, Buddhist psychology kind of stuff into my work. And one of the things that just recently a whole bunch of patients have commented on that I was like, Oh my God, that's right. I, that's been my experience too was, um, it was something like, well, but wait, why is it when I'm in pain, 
I'm a hundred percent convinced this is it. This is reality. This is forever. It's never going to go away. Um, but when I'm experiencing pleasure, I, I never think that <laughs> I, I actually think like any second it could go away. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it just sort of brought to mind, like, it seems like there's something different in the quality of pain or pleasure, or is it something we're doing that's making it different? It's us. Okay. Because the, the actual thought that it's going to go away, the pleasure, that's the dukkha. That's why we don't like it. We kind of don't want a lot of good stuff happening to us because it's going to go away anyway. <laughs> so we kind of never let, our, let ourselves fully get into the pleasure because we're too busy dwelling on whether it'll stay and how do I make it stay? And we get all into that. We don't just fully experience pleasure. And the pain, we're so caught up in trying to get rid of it that we don't fully experience pain either. We don't fully experience pain that comes and then goes away. But because we're so caught in it, we won't let it go away because our minds is just dwelling on the wrongness of it. But sometimes like the best thing is a good cry and you let it out. It's just done. And it's so freeing. You feel like, oh, I just let myself cry and I got it all out there and it's good. But this kind of not wanting to cry, we keep trying to keep ourselves from crying. And in the course of keeping ourselves from crying, we're actually holding on to the pain longer than we have to. And so this, this, uh, the middle way was learning to see that pleasure is here and just experience it, even though we know it won't stay. The experience of it, it's that, uh, you know, that little story, there's a little story where somebody's running away from um, something and they fall off of a cliff. Anyway, they're hanging onto this branch and the branch is breaking and they're going to die. And there's two tigers down at the bottom where they're going to die to. So they're really going to get chewed up quick. And so, so they can't keep themselves. They can't keep the branch from breaking. They can't prevent themselves from falling straight down off this cliff into this tiger. But in some moment, they see this strawberry straight in front of them and say, this is the best strawberry ever. That understanding seems to our ordinary mind so ridiculous that you would compare the eating of a strawberry with this sure death that's going to happen with these tigers. But what the the story is pointing to is that pleasure, no matter how long it is, if we fully engulf it and be with it, there is this... uh, this um, it's forever. It's not limited to what the mind thinks. The mind thinks eating a strawberry is nothing compared to a drop off and you're going to die. And that's it. It thinks the dropping off to the die and all that is the big story. But really what the story is pointing to is the sure foreverness of fully experienced pleasure. 
And that that's what it points to. But we never get to really fully experience pleasure because um, we're too busy caught up in the sheer drop off. That's a that's a really interesting um, idea that like on some level, we're actually curtailing our own pleasure because we're already dreading it going away. That's right. Okay. That's Freud right. would love that. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So the, 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 the difficulty is to fully enjoy the pleasure when it's here. And that is a difficult thing to do unless you are, um, unless you're, you're, uh, you're going to let go of everything else. Thank you. Victoria. Yep. So in my practice lately, I've been trying to pay attention to like the particularly sticky, you know, difficult feelings. And what I've noticed is like often with like the really sticky ones, there's like some sort of like identification going, you know, like my job is stressful. I'm always stressed. It's going to, it's Monday. It's going to be stressful. And like, it kind of like perpetuates it. Yep. And yeah, I feel like that probably relates to the resistance as well, but I was wondering if that sounds familiar and speak to so that. So a, a better way to hold it is you can't make your job not stressful. In the mind, job should not be stressful. It should be easy. I should be able to do this, no problem. But the job itself is stressful. So what you're learning to do is accept that the job is stressful and what are the coping skills or resources you could help with being in a stressful job, which is very different than the resistance to being in a stressful job. Because that resistance is the mind's thinking it could make this better. So it doesn't have to be so stressful. I could figure it out and it won't be stressful. No, it will be stressful. And learning to accept Ah, uh, this is a stressful job. So what can I do to help with this stressful job? Then you're not in the resistance and you're actually in the reality that actually helps you be with it. So it may mean that you have to change some of the things that you want to do that you can't do because you have a stressful job and you have to put it off until later. Or it may that you do things like me. Um, I used to come home and just sit down on the couch with my coat on, turn on the TV, and I would be there until the next morning. It was time for me to get up, take a shower, and go back to trial. That I could not, that somehow trying to, when I was in trial, this idea that I was going to do all this stuff just wasn't possible. Because the trial took so much out of me, I had to give myself permission to just come home and do nothing. And I'm not doing nothing. I'm not cleaning up nothing. I'm not doing nothing. And that that was completely righteous. So that it's beginning to see what can you do on behalf of yourself to help you be in a stressful job because you are in a stressful job. And so that's, that's really what the middle way is. So it's like our lack of acceptance of like the circumstances and wanting to be different then prevents us from doing things that might actually help 
sense of just like clinging. That's to right. The That's right. You're clinging to it being something other than this, but it isn't that it's this. And so uh, one time I was, uh, somebody said, well, you know, uh, our jobs are our choices, right? And I have to put people in jail and I had to issue warrants and the judge put them in jail, but I was certainly asked for them to go. And so I'm issuing warrants and, and uh, requesting warrants and things like that. And, and so I was talking to someone who had been, you know, who was a group of people who had been, were convicts. And they were like, well, you got a choice there. And I'm like, no, I don't. I don't have a choice. I mean, that's my job. That's what I have to do. It's difficult, but I have to do that. And they said, you could quit. Quit. I mean, I never, it never even dawned on me. I could quit. And then all of a sudden I realized, no, I understand what they're saying. If I want to do the job, this is part of the job. I want to do that too. I'm choosing all of that because I'm choosing this job. And if I didn't want to do it, which would be what I thought, oh, I don't want to do that part. I have to. And they were saying, no, you got to square up with the truth. If you want the job, you want to do that too. And if you don't really want to do that, you don't have to take the job. So part of what you're accepting is this job is stressful. I like the job. I don't necessarily like all the stress, but I like the job and I want to do the job. So what can I do in my to build capacity to be in a job that's stressful with some things I like and some things I don't. You see? That's middle. Thank you. Yeah. See, I got mad respect for the people inside the room. You guys on Zoom, you can just hit a little button and get your hand out. But here they have to get up, come all the way over and get the two mics. We got to give some respect for the people in the room. <laughs> and I just totally forgot what I was going to say. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> just take a moment. That's okay. It's like, um, no, I think it's like that resistance thing that you're talking about, which is like it's a consistent like or like a constantly oh yeah i'm feeling it i'm letting it go what's going to come after that i'm not sure and that's okay too and i was thinking about i thought about pema children was talking about the second arrow like there's the first arrow which is ow that hurt or whatever and then the second arrow is oh, i don't like that that hurt but I just thought about another kind of arrow, which is, um, you know, I I don't like that, or, or I am like just feeling squirmy about just letting things be, you know, that's kind of an arrow too, in a way, right? Yep. Yep. That, you're talking about the arrow that says wrong is wrong. I should do something about that wrong. I can't just let it be there can't just let something happen. And the second arrow that regular people like us, we feel, but a strong practitioner doesn't feel 
the second arrow is actually this sense of being enjoined. Meaning that if some bad thing happens to us, we take it personally. And that personalizing something that is a natural flow of causes and conditions coming together, that personalization is why we resist. Because we think it's something happening to us and we don't want that. So we push against it. But what you're learning to see is that things are happening true enough and you might be experiencing some of this true or not, true enough, but your practice is to help you be with whatever that experience is at the level you can be with it. And if you cannot be with it at all, then how do I skillfully get out of this? So meditation helps because we can see all the different things operating at the same time. Kind That's of. right. Yeah. So when you're meditating, unpleasantness comes up all the time, even if it's something like a simple itch that you really want to scratch. And so you scratch it. Don't worry about it. Whenever we scratch an itch, it's always like, yeah, I should have scratched that one. What we don't prepare for is the one that's going to come right back. You don't think about it. You scratch. Okay, I'll just scratch that one too. Okay, that's the last one I was scratch. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it's sort of like they're all over the place. And at some point you stop it. You're like, I'm not scratching anymore. And then you see that that itch will rise. It's unpleasant. It's itchy. It, the mind thinks it needs to scratch it, but then it goes away. What happened to it? I didn't scratch it, but it went away. Seeing that rise of unpleasantness and not doing anything about it is training you to understand how to be with difficulties of all kinds, unpleasantnesses of all kinds. Having a mind that's talking all the time and coming back to an anchor. Mind is still talking. Come back to an anchor. Mind is still talking. Come back to an anchor. Mind is talking the whole sit. Keep coming back to an anchor. Get up from the sit and it's like, Jesus, was I meditating? I was coming back to the anchor the whole time. But you're training the mind to let go of its thinking and come back to the anchor. So I'm feeling the pain, but I'm also not feeling the pain. You are. You're feeling the pain but you're also recognizing that that pain is changing. It's not this concretized rock right here. It's changing. It's moving. And it may be that your foot is in an awkward position and you actually need to move it. But it may also be that your body just is tired of sitting and it wants you to get up. So you have to, I mean, your mind is tired of sitting. The body loves sitting. It doesn't care, but the mind is the one that gets tired of it. So you have to discern in the moment, is this something I need to actually move my foot about? Or is this something I need to settle with and be with? In the moment is reality. Aversion to the pain and not caring where it's coming from, that is not reality. 
And so what the Buddha was pointing to was being in reality, noticing the pain, and then discerning, is this something I should move? Or is this something I should, let's sit with it and see what happens. Will it go away on its own? What is this pain, really? And you begin to investigate it. Whether you move or you don't move really doesn't matter. But it's whether you know what's actually going on that matters. And that's what I think we're practicing by meditating is all these scenarios come up in our meditations that make our meditations crazy. And and we don't have any control over it. But we're not supposed to control it. We're supposed to watch this unfolding and give ourselves time to learn how the mind is. To learn how is the mind when it's angry? How is the mind when it's caught in sleepiness? How is it when I have all this aversion or restlessness or, you know, wanting the bell to ring and wishing that sit would end and all of that? What is the mind like when it's in all that? We actually want to see it and not do anything about it. So we can learn, oh, Oh, yeah, I want the bell to ring. And then all of a sudden, you don't care about the bell. You stop thinking about the bell. And that's what you're looking for. Thank you. Yeah. All right. It's 830. You've endured as much as you can. I'm not going to take up any more time. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, The one thing beautiful about being in a hot room, so when you go outside, it's cooler. (laughs) All right, I'll see you next week.